Okay, well, if you haven't figured out yet, tonight we are beginning a new study in the book of Daniel. So as we open up there and get situated, I just want to share a few things about the book. Um, There are a number of things about Daniel that make it unique. One is the division between it being a book on narrative, which is stories, and the other half, which is apocalyptic, which is a type of kind of prophetic literature that has a lot of symbolism and confusing stuff that um, a lot of people can get kind of bogged down in. What's also interesting about the book of Daniel is that it is written in two languages, which is the only book in the Bible to have two different languages and the only book in the Bible to have part of it being uh, written in Aramaic, which if you um, are familiar with Aramaic, that's probably the, the common language that Jesus spoke. Um, So if you watch the Passion of the Christ when they're talking, that is Aramaic. And so the book really is um, a a neat little book. It it shares a lot of good lessons with us. And I'm not sure how much you know about the book of Daniel, but I think a lot of us have one story in mind that we all can kind of bring to mind when we think of Daniel. We think of Daniel and and the lion's den. Yeah. So hopefully... By the time we are done considering this book, we will all see that the prophet shows us much more than just a Sunday school story. So let me begin by reading Daniel chapter 1, and then I'll pray and consider what the Lord has for us in this passage. So Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Apeznim, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, Youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Balthasar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has signed your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then David said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then 
Let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who ate the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Yummy. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word, and we ask that we would have humble hearts before it. Lord, I ask that um, these next few moments would be an offering to you. Help it, Lord, to be glorifying that we desire to hear from what you have to say and not from me. So, Lord, I thank you for these students. I thank you for the book of Daniel. And we pray that this, um, this time would be beneficial. Amen. According to the latest estimates, about 100 million Christians are persecuted worldwide. So to say it another way, persecution amongst Christians has happened more in this calendar year than it has in all of history combined. When you hear about the persecuted church in the 1040 window and parts of Asia and Europe, you have to wonder sometimes, where is God in all of that? How do we live in a world that seems to be so bent against what we believe and who we are as children of God. The world is not growing friendlier to those who claim to be Christians, but more hostile. And so even as I consider just history in the last century, the last hundred years, with all the wars, all the death, the grotesque crimes against humans, the Holocaust, and I consider all the people who have abandoned and left their faith because they couldn't reconcile how could a loving and sovereign God go together. When I was 19, my, my best friend had to have a heart transplant and he died a few months later after um, his heart rejected. And I remember being around a, a number of my friends and one friend that was just a serious look said, how could God let someone so full of life and healthy die for no apparent reason? See, how, how do we respond to situations when tragedy strikes? When it seems like persecution is on the rise and all around the world people are, are more and more hostile to Christ. These are the very questions that the book of Daniel 
hopes to raise and hopes to answer for us. And so we just read Daniel chapter 1, and I'd like to just give a little bit of context for this series and also for this chapter. So the background story to the book of Daniel is this, that after years and years and years of God sending prophet after prophet to the people of Judah, telling them to repent, telling them to turn away from their wickedness, turn away from their idols, and serve God, that after years and years and years of this, God punished them. So a long time ago, before the Israelites were even living in the land, right before they went into the promised land, Moses, their greatest prophet, told them this. When you are in the land, you have to remember, if you obey God, it will lead to blessing. But if you disobey God, he will send you out of the land. And so eventually, hundreds and hundreds of years later, God's people never got the message. In essence, if, if you want to summarize the message of the prophets, it was this. Shape up or ship out. And unfortunately, the people didn't listen, and they were forced to leave the promised land, the land that God had promised to their forefathers, a land flowing with milk and honey, the place that for them was the, the concrete evidence that God was developing in them a nation for all people. And so Judah fell into the hands of what we call the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. And as I consider the book of Daniel, one of the tendencies we have, and maybe not with Daniel, but with the whole Bible, is we like to see ourselves as the main character. We like to associate with Daniel. And I think it's really important for us, before we kind of dive into the book of Daniel, to, to remind ourselves... Who is this book being written to? This book is being written to people who have just seen the collapse of their nation. They have just watched the destruction of God's temple. The walls of Jerusalem are down. Thousands and thousands and thousands of men, women, and children were executed by the hands of the Babylonians. And they are now living in this foreign land. And do you know what their questions are? How do we live in a world that is so bent against us and against God? Has God forgotten about us? Is God even sovereign enough to protect his people? I think it's best for us to consider ourselves as part of the audience. That as Christians now, we also live in a world of exile. And we are trying to consider how do we live in a world that is bent against us and God. And so coming to the book of Daniel in chapter 1, I think this, this, this first chapter is a story in itself. And when I say a story in itself, it, it has the basic components of a narrative story. So where you have an introduction of characters, you have a uh, conflict rising, you have a rising conflict with the climax, and then you have a nice peaceful resolution at the end. And so tonight, during chap Daniel chapter 1, I would like us to consider um, three different scenes that this chapter is trying to teach us on some of these questions. And hopefully by the end of looking at this chapter and these three scenes, we can develop what the message of Daniel chapter 1 is all about. So, the first scene I'd like to look at, I was really um, advantageous tonight, and I came up with slides. Whoa, look at that. Whoa. 
What? I know. So the first scene is this. The new home of Daniel. So in verses 1 and 2, it begins by a description of Nebuchadnezzar destroying Jerusalem and destroying the temple of God. Now it says that he came to Jerusalem and besieged it, which siege warfare is a very common way. You kind of starve them out, and they're all weak. You come in and you invade. And so what's really interesting, if you go ahead and look down in verse uh, 2, it says this, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, hand, and with some of the vessels of the house of God, he brought them to the land of Shinar. Now, for someone in this day and age who's reading this, a faithful Jew, that phrase would have sounded familiar. The land of Shinar. Now, I don't think you can remember, but there's a story in Genesis 11 where it talks about a bunch of people who went into the land of Shinar, which is Babylon, and they built the Tower of Babel. And so the exact same place where they built the Tower of Babel, and now is showing us that this is where God's people are. And what the author of Daniel is immediately doing is he's trying to show us that right from the beginning, Babylon is an evil place. It is a kingdom of darkness. And this, for, for the common Jew who's reading this, must have been a scary thought. It must have been easy for those Jews to lose their faith in God when their country was destroyed and it was overrun by this evil nation. Now, I don't want to get into the detail too much, but um, I, during seminary, I was fortunate to be able to study a little bit ancient Near East culture and study the Babylonians in depth. And they were probably some of the most grotesque, brutal um, people in the history of the planet. Like, they make... ISIS look good. The Babylonians. And this is where the people are now. And they're trying to figure out, what do we do? How do we live in this land? And to them, to the Jews, then it may have seemed to them that the Babylonian gods were far stronger than Israel's God. However, let me point out one detail. A really important detail. Look at verse 2 again. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. You see, a modern scholar today might look and say, well, Babylon was far better and superior and a better army, and that's why they were able to invade Jerusalem. But what we're seeing here from the word of God is that God allowed, God gave Israel into the hands of the Babylonians. Why? Because over and over and over again, they did not choose to follow God. So God had to send them out. And so what happens is we begin to get introduced to these characters, Daniel and his three friends. And this is where I think the plot really begins to thicken, okay? So kind of what happened is when, when Nebuchadnezzar came in, they came in in three waves. And the first wave, they took all of the nobility and the royal family. And so they are literally looking for the cream of the crop. And you know what's interesting is most people think that these four characters, Daniel and his friend, were teenagers. 14 to 15 year olds. Pretty similar to the ages in this room. 
And what they want to do is they kind of want to brainwash them. And so if you notice when we read, they're, they're trying to assimilate them to Babylonian culture. And they did this three ways. First, they would re-educate them. Okay, we know that you've been educated in your Jewish ways and all these different things, but now you, you have to learn a new Babylon form of arithmetic and math and all these different things. And so this process of, of brainwashing them, of reprogramming them to be Babylonian wise men, is a three-year-long process. And so the first, like I said, is education. The second, they are going to make them eat their new foods. And so there's a lot of description about how uh, they were able to eat the king's portion of wine and food. And that was not just a way of giving them good food, but most people back then had a lot of customs and religious things surrounding food that if they got rid of that, got, is kind of getting rid of their customs, their way of life, their identity. And thirdly, they give them new names. When I was in third grade, I really wish I could pick my own name. But I guess Aaron is, Aaron is okay. <laughs> Now, I don't have the time to do in too much detail, but if you, if you notice, it tells us all the names of these Jewish boys. So the first name we have was Daniel. And we have Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, the first name Daniel meant God is my judge. Hananiah meant Yahweh has been gracious. Mishael meant who is what God is or who is like God. And Azariah means Yahweh has helped. And what's interesting is every name that they get switched to, so Belteshar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are all switched to names representing Babylonian gods. And so here's the plot. Here is the, here is the dilemma that these four Jewish boys have under an oppressor that is evil in a land that is bent against them. Here is the dilemma. What do you do when you believe in something with all of your heart? When you have convictions to your core, when it's who you are as, as your identity, and you go into a context where no one believes what you believe? What do you do when you go into a school or a job or you're part of a sports team or even at a home where you are believing in something with all of your heart, yet you are surrounded by ideas, customs, and desires that are different than yours. This is the dilemma that Daniel and his friends face, and yet it is a dilemma that as Christians we face daily. Daniel and his friends are painting a small picture of what every Jew in Babylon is going through. It is not a Christian world that they are living in, in Babylon. Not even close. And so what some people did, some of the Jews, right when they got there, they're like, you know what? We were living in Judah before, and when we lived in Judah, we did what they did, and we ate what they ate. But now we're not in Judah, we're in Babylon. So while we're in Babylon, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do what they do. We're going to eat what they eat. And we're going to become just like them. And so in essence, some of these Jews, right when they got into Babylon, they immediately assimilated. Another way of saying that, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. 
And this is the question of how do we maintain our identity as God's people, as the Jewish nation in this country? See, let me, let me break this down for a second. If your religion, listen, if your religion is simply a framework, it's something that you kind of just talk about a little bit, but you don't take that seriously. Let me be, let me be very clear. That the day hardship comes, you will immediately be absorbed to the people around you. If, you, if your religion, if you being a Christian is just something you kind of say and you don't really practice it and you don't really invest and initiate in growing in your relationship with Christ, I can guarantee you that the second you have any pushback, the second you leave the nest, you will be immediately absorbed to the culture that is around you. Which is why I would say so many quote-unquote Christian kids who grow up in the church, that the second they go to college, do you know what happens? They immediately assimilate. Because their faith was never their own. It was simply a framework. It never went beneath the skin. You see... What makes Christians distinctive in the world is that they do not conform to the world and its standards, but this is what they do. They remain faithful to God. Do you know what makes us distinctive as religious people? Is that when everything around us is changing and everyone is going with the natural ways of the world, do you know what we do? We remain faithful. As Christians, we seek to honor God in all that we do. And as Jesus said, that we would be the light of the world, that we would be the salt of the earth. We don't live in Babylon. We live in the United States of America, the state of Washington, and the city of Olympia. But we do live in a world just like the one that Daniel and his friends lived in. So how will we respond? Will we assimilate? And so the tension rises a little more in this next scene. Uh, If you kind of look down at verses 8 through 16, look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And so the second scene begins with a contrast. Now, if you're reading a story, this is the part where, you know, you really start highlighting the, the issue. But Daniel, you know, um, maybe your parents are telling you a good night story. But the king decided to go out and to take care of the bad guy. It's the part of the story where you really start to lean in and see what are they going to do with this problem? What are they going to do with this tension? And so Daniel resolves that he would not defile himself by what? eating the food and drinking the wine. So he probably he gets to Babylon and he's not like, gets invited. Hey, do you want to come to Babylon with us? It's like, sword to his face. Yeah, you're coming to Babylon. Guess we're coming to Babylon. Uh, next, he gets there. Hey, by the way, your name's not Daniel. It's Balthazar. Uh, guess my name's Balthazar. They, they won't say Daniel. So he's kind of like two for three. He's kind of like, well, I guess I kind of have to do this. What am I going to do about it? But now, Eat this food. 
You know, there's like some, a few theories of why he wouldn't eat the food. I think the, the clearest one is one that it wasn't kosher. So probably the food that was being offered was pig or horse, which was forbidden in their dietary laws for Jews at the time. But also, it probably could be that they offered this food as sacrifices to the gods, and so his personal conscience is, I can't eat food that's been sacrificed to a false god. And so he resolves not to defile himself. And for risk of being executed, for risk of getting pushed back as one of these young wise men, Daniel takes a dangerous stand. And he asks, hey, can I abstain from this? And so this, this eunuch is like, yo, man, like, like, if I don't give you guys this and you guys look weak, that makes me look bad, and I'm going to die, I don't like this. And so Daniel kind of like, instead of going to the boss, he finds like the assistant to the boss, and he's like, hey, yo, listen, brah, I'm asking for 10 days, man. 10 days. Help us out here. If, 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 it, if we aren't healthier than by then, We'll call it quits, man. You can do whatever you want with this, but just give us 10 days. And there's this test. I, I've listened to many sermons, many devotions, about we need to be more like Daniel. Daniel, he, he shows faithfulness. He, he isn't going to, and somehow they, they talk about sex in this passage. Like, he wasn't saying he's going to abstain from sex. He said he's not going to eat this kind of food. But anyways, they, they, people like to look at this passage and just say, be more like Daniel. There's even a book called The Daniel Diet. <laughs> as if the point of Daniel 1 was to get us all as Christians on a diet. Now don't get me wrong. Being on a healthy diet is wise. But I don't believe that's what the text is instructing us to do. Here, here's the point of the second scene. Daniel chose to be faithful even if it may cost him his life. Daniel is is trying to to not assimilate. He's not trying just to bend over. Okay, I'm going to get a new name change. I'm going to get a new education. I'm going to learn their language. I'm going to eat their food. I'm going to win in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. Daniel says, no. You know, some of these things I can't help. I I live in this world now. I'm going to live with that. But but the Lord's going to help me. And he didn't know it was going to work out. And so as I think about our day and age, it seems that almost everything is contrary to what God's word says in our culture. I remember a few years ago, my wife was watching the reruns of the TV show Friends. And you know, happened to watch a few episodes with it. And, you know, it, it shows basic American culture. And, and the amount of how many times people slept with that person and slept with that person and did this and did that. And I was, just, I was thinking about this show like, man, like it, it has nothing to do with God's word. And that night at youth group, middle school youth group, I would say, middle school girl, like, yeah, all I really do is watch reruns of Friends all day. I'm not trying to judge, I'm not trying to say anything, but I just think like, it is everywhere in our culture, contrary to what God's word says. We do not live in a Christian world. We we live in Babylon. And in our day, when everything is contrary to doing what God's word says, here's my question. What are the things in your life that you resolved 
to not do so that you wouldn't defile yourself. Daniel, he resolved that he would not defile himself. For you as a, as a high schooler and as a Christian, would we resolve to maintain a biblical understanding of sex and gender? Would we resolve the firm conviction that humans don't just need a teacher, but they need a savior? Would you resolve to believe the need that we all should be in healthy relational community where we learn to care about others? See, guys, let me tell you something. The church has always struggled with the issue being presented in Daniel 1. Do we assimilate to the culture or do we isolate from the culture? But look what Daniel's doing here. He's in a new land, and he's not withdrawing. He'll take the name change. He'll do the re-education. He'll be part of the, the program. But guess what? He doesn't just become the culture. He does this. And I think this is a really important point. He cooperates without compromise. He's part of the culture. But he does not become the culture. He doesn't give in. And to the, the, the beliefs that he has, the things that make him a Jewish person, he will not give up. And as Christians, we should be the same. We cooperate without compromise. We will not compromise on what we believe God has called us to do. That we maintain a biblical understanding of sex and gender. That we would have the firm conviction that the humans... They aren't just a little bad. They're a lot bad, and they need a Savior. That we all thrive best when we learn to love our neighbor better than ourselves. And so as I see by just general plain observation, they said yes to some things, but not to everything. I hope that this room would be a room full of young people who had resolved to abstain against pornography. A resolve to abstain against gossip. Against having shallow, superficial relationships. Against being so political that it becomes our God. Against being so performance-driven that it makes us Look like all we care about is ourself. I, I, I'm legitimately convinced that as a high schooler, if you can listen well to people, and if you demonstrate that you are submissive to your parents, you look better than 99% of your peers by doing just those two things. So the test goes on. I have to call it the blessing of Daniel. So in verses 17 through 21, we have this last scene. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And that whole vision and dreams part is really important for the rest of the book because Daniel becomes a key figure of interpreting a lot of the dreams of King Nebuchadnezzar. But if you notice, this is the third time we have this phrase, God gave them something. And just like I said, any good narrative story, we have this introduction to these characters, what happened. Uh, Judah was given to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. We have these four young Hebrew boys. 
And we have this tension now of how are they going to assimilate? Are they going to give in? Or are they going to hold back? And so we kind of now get to the resolution of the story. The climax is they might die at this test. The test was what? Give us 10 days, bro. 10 days. Now, I've been on diets before. And they actually say, don't be on a diet. Be on a, like a life change or whatever they say. I don't know. Um, maybe that's wise. Maybe that's wise. But what's interesting, like, I, I know a few things about diet. If you only drink water and you only eat vegetables, you're going to lose weight. But if you look, go ahead, look down at verse um, 18. At the end of the time when the king had commanded them... Uh, Nope, that is the wrong verse. Verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh. I read that verse. I'm like, what are you talking about, Willis? Like, I'm going to eat vegetables and I'm fatter at the end of it? No, no, no. That's just a word that doesn't get translated well. It means that they were better nourished. And so the test is, proves faithful. And so at the end of the 10 days, what they kind of got was, okay, fine. We won't let you... We won't make you eat this food. We'll let you keep that custom, okay? And so for the next, the rest of the three years, they got to eat their food, and they continued in their education, and, you know, they probably call his name, hey, Abendigo, Abendigo, hey, Abendigo, oh, hey, oh, yeah, I forgot you changed my name. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, what's up? Right? Like, if you got a new name, like, sometimes I hear, dad, 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 I forget, like, that's me. Like, <laughs> I'm used to being called Aaron my entire life. And now someone calls me dad. It's like, it takes a second, right? This passage, though, this resolution, if you look down um, at verse 20, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better. Ten times better. Wouldn't it be a great point if I could preach, like, hey, if you're faithful to God, if you just wait to have sex, you know, till marriage, guess what? You'll get ten times the blessing. I mean, that preaches, man. I could fill a room with this. Like, hey, you want ten times to be better than everyone else? Just be faithful to God. It mourns me that a lot of the preaching... um, that comes out of this book is very moralistic. And it's preached just like that. This passage is not showing us that if we're just like Daniel and his friends, we'll be ten times better than the rest of everyone. And I think our, our desire and tendency to read it like that, it's because as if um, we just think God is a genie who rewards people for good behavior. But what if that... What if that what if that was true? Then I would say this. Consider the millions of people who are persecuted because of their association with Jesus. Consider the people whose lives never got better when they followed Jesus. You see, before the Jews went into exile, do you want to know every single Jew in exile watched thousands and thousands and thousands of their own people get executed? And so if you look at verse 17, one last time for me, there's something really important. I think it's going to flush us out what Daniel 1 is te- teaching us. As for these youths, God gave them learning. 
God gave them the success that they had. Was Daniel just great in his own right and he earned success? He just worked much harder and got ten times better? Was Daniel doing all of this by himself? Him being like the golden child poster boy? It's a person who we would all hate because he makes us all look bad? What this passage is teaching us is that it is God guiding his people in a world that is hostile to him. God is in control of every detail of our life. God is the one who is leading Daniel on his friends. Now look at this. This is really important, okay? Verse 2, what does this say? And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. What's the next one? Verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuchs. Now also, really quick, if you know anything about the Old Testament, especially the book of Genesis, this also sounds like another story in which there's a guy named Joseph who went to exile in Egypt and God gave him great favor in the eyes of the chief jailer. Who Joseph was also a person who represented faithfulness to God in a foreign land. Also, verse 17, God gave them learning. This is the point that Daniel is trying to teach us, that God is the one who is being faithful to his people even when they are living in Babylon. Even when they are living in a world full of hurt and disaster. So another way of saying all this that the persecution of millions of Christians is because God allows it. God is the primary agent, the primary character in this story. It is God who is behind the scenes of everything. And so what we see is a great grand picture of God's sovereignty. And so if you're a Jew reading this for the first time, you would be encouraged. Why? Because God is the sovereign God who is leading his people and allowing for all these things to happen. Daniel is a picture that God is guiding him faithfully as he remains faithful. So as I look at these three scenes, this is what Daniel 1 teaches us. It says this, the sovereign Lord will guide his people to encourage them to be faithful. The sovereign Lord will guide his people to encourage them to be faithful. You see, this chapter of Daniel is not teaching us just to go on a diet and be faithful to God. Or if I'm more like Daniel, I'll get more of God's blessings. Rather, guys listen, rather the passage gives us great encouragement that even though we today as Christians live in a godless world, God is still faithfully guiding his people to faithfulness. How many of you are confident that if you were taken out of your current context and you were placed in a different land where you knew no one, you weren't in your parents' home anymore, you didn't have the same friends, and this land had different values and beliefs. How confident are you that you would remain faithful to God and not assimilate to the culture around you? How many are confident that when you go to college or the army or whatever you do after high school, that you will not assimilate to the culture around you? 
And more than that, how many of us can not only assimilate, but have the courage as Daniel to not even compromise in our faith? Here's the thing. If you're a Christian, it's true now, though. It's not just the world when you graduate. It's the world that we live in currently, a world that looks a lot like the world Daniel and his friends were in. They didn't withdraw. They didn't assimilate. They cooperated without compromise. And as I consider Daniel 1 again, I can't help but think of the millions of Christians who are struggling with this tension of being faithful to God in a godless world. Christians, if they compromise just a little bit, it would save their lives. Christians who don't get jobs because they bear the name of Christ. All of these questions may lead us to consider if God is big enough or loving enough. But here is the encouragement we get from Daniel. And it's that point right there. The sovereign Lord will guide his people to encourage them to be faithful. So lastly, by way of conclusion, it's the fun part. When we consider Daniel, let us not forget who Daniel reminds us of. As God allowed Daniel to be taken from the promised land of Israel and into exile of sinful Babylon, so God, the Father, sent his only son from heaven into this sinful world. As Daniel was a true Israelite, so Jesus was a true Israelite, the very son of God. Daniel in Babylon was obedient to God with respect to food and drink. Jesus was obedient to God in all things. God guided Daniel to a place of great authority in Babylon, but God guided his son Jesus to a place of even greater authority the authority, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend and every tongue confess. So as we consider how God will guide his people to encourage them to be faithful, let us never forget our Savior Christ who lived perfect in Babylon, even when we couldn't. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this... um, this chapter of scripture, Lord, and I pray that you would um, encourage the hearts of these young people to be faithful wherever they are. Help us to remember Christ who, when coming to this sinful world, remains sinless in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you for the hope of your sovereignty, God, that you are in control of all things. You are guiding us, us, your people, to be faithful. Help us to do so more and more. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.